0: Well before Robert Oppenheimer's Los Alamos, Washington, D.C. became the unlikely birthplace of the atomic age. Buried deep underneath a hill in Chevy Chase, D.C., lies the so-called atom smasher, one of the first particle accelerators in the U.S. In Washington, this is about as close as you can get to the atomic age. It's where U.S. physicists first saw for themselves and confirmed for the world that nuclear fission, the splitting of an atom, was possible.
2: That's, no. Ah, let me get it. No, I got it, I know, oh, the, it? I know the secret Oh, point. it was back over here.
0: After fumbling and finding the lights, librarian at the Carnegie Institute of Science, Sean Hardy, took us down the tunnels to the atom smasher's target room.
2: This is intentionally zigzagging for radiation protection, because radiation travels in straight lines.
0: Old preprints and scientific papers line the dimly lit walls, leading to a circular room the size of a kitchen A concrete, dark kitchen with a beam shooter right in the middle. And it was here, in January of 1939, that physicists really proved to the world that splitting an atom was possible. Right in front of us
2: would have been Enrico Fermi and Niels Bohr and Leon Rosenfeld, so some of the greatest atomic physicists of their era, having just witnessed the results of uranium fission with their own eyes.
0: It's an event that launched the world into the atomic age, getting the attention of Robert Oppenheimer himself. Of course, the initial discovery and its interpretation in early 1939 uh,
1: attracted everybody's interest.
0: On the show, we'll go deep into this little-known D.C. history and why the Atomic Age and its story is still far from over. Sean Hardy, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast, the, uh, the de facto historian of the Carnegie Institute. De facto. My title is science librarian, but I enjoy <laughs> the history of our institution and uh, I'm glad to talk to you today. The Oppenheimer movie just came out, so obviously there's peaked interest in, you know, the nuclear world, um, how it came to be, and this location where we're sitting kind of plays an important part in that history. So just to start, can you kind of take us back to where this place kind of fits into that time? Well, Carnegie Institution's Department of Terrestrial Magnetism
2: has been here in uh, leafy Chevy Chase, D.C. since 1914. Mm. The neighborhood grew up in the 1930s. And one of the icons, I would say, of the neighborhood from that era is what we call the Atomic Physics Observatory. So this—a lot of people think there's a telescope inside. It's got a white dome. It looks like <laughs> right. people think about, you know, what a, what an astronomical telescope is. But— uh, Actually, it is an atom-smashing machine.
0: Wow. Now, I must admit, I grew up in this area, so I sled on the hill. That's just on, you know, the side of this campus. And when I looked up at it, I was like, oh, that's a telescope for sure. Absolutely. You know, so I'm, I'm one of those people. So tell us about this atom smasher. When it was first made in 1938, it was used a year later in 1939 for kind of a historical moment. Tell us about that. It was. It is arguably the most
2: significant event to happen on this campus. So in uh, December of 1938, scientists in Berlin split the uranium atom for the first time. The news was not publicized as it would be today, but a scientific paper was submitted about it. And until the paper came out, no one was the wiser of what was going on there. And then totally by coincidence, a major physics conference was scheduled here in Washington. So each year during the 30s and 40s, there was a a conference co-sponsored by Carnegie Institution and George Washington University. And uh, so the meeting was scheduled for January of 1939. Also, by chance, two eminent European physicists, Niels Bohr and Enrico Fermi, were coming. Now, they were both Nobel laureates. Right. Uh, when I talk to people about Bohr, I think, well, if you think about how you learned about an atom in grade school or or, or junior high school, like a little solar system with the right. nucleus, that is Bohr's model of an atom. And yeah. so, got the Nobel Prize in the 1920s for that. Uh, Fermi got the Nobel Prize in the in the 30s for for his work on making radioactive elements, new elements. And so uh, anyways, both of these eminent scientists were in the U.S. on research trips and were invited to come to this conference. So the conference uh, was convened. Uh, the meetings were actually held at George Washington University. The meeting was really about low-temperature physics. It had nothing to do with splitting atoms. Mm. Um, But uh, during the meeting, Bohr announced to the assembled people the results of these experiments in Germany that he had known about. He He was in Denmark. He had colleagues, and he knew about the work that was going on there, but didn't really feel at liberty to say anything about it. But apparently... He and Fermi had the chance to talk privately at the meeting in person for the first time since those results were, were conducted, and they agreed to announce the results to the gathered physicists there. Now, again, by chance, just two months earlier, Carnegie's atom smasher was functional. Wow. It was uh, It was used to probe the structure of the atom. And uh, hearing the, the specifics of how to do the experiment, scientists from Carnegie raced back here to campus from the meeting. <laughs> up Connecticut Avenue. Up, <laughs> K- up Connecticut <laughs> Avenue, right? And uh, set up the machine to try to replicate this very experiment. They, wow. they worked the whole day. By evening, they were ready to demonstrate it. And so the delegates from the conference, including Bohr and Fermi, came here and came were able here. to. Came here. and. <sighs> We we can visit the target room underground, underneath the accelerator, where they stood, and witnessed the
0: splitting of the uranium atom with their eyes for the first time. And just to underline the significance of this moment, it's fission, right? Nuclear fission. It's a breaking apart of an atom into two smaller atoms with an immense amount of energy being released. Exactly. And that is really you know the genesis of what became uh, you know a fission nuclear bomb. And Oppenheimer. Read this and he saw this and he kind of put it together in his head, and this is the genesis of the atomic age, for better or for worse. This
2: this was the dawn of the atomic age. Now, the story is sometimes told that the atom was first split in America here. It's <laughs> not quite it's a little more nuanced. Right. Because on that same day, the same experiment was done at Johns Hopkins and at Columbia University, and within 24 hours in Berkeley. Wow. And apparently physicists are not good at keeping secrets. (laughs) And by the time Bohr and Fermi came here, they had already shared this with other colleagues who were in on that race. So I would say plus or minus 12 hours, we were in the (laughs) vanguard of that but interesting media angle here. There was a, report, a science reporter from the Washington Star newspaper, now defunct. Right. Thomas Henry was his name, and he was attending the conference and reporting on it in real time, I guess we would say, and he was the first to break the news of wow. the experiment here, beating the New York Times by a day.
1: That's and good. so
2: I think that kind of fueled the the legend that Carnegie first split the atom in America. I think we just had the best press
0: coverage. <laughs> right, right. In the age of Twitter and social media, well, the news would have traveled so much faster. But even just with Niels Bohr kind of sharing this information word of mouth almost, right, and then it right. kind of uh, leading to, uh, pardon the phrase, explosion of information here in the U.S. The timing is extraordinary. I mean, not only the on the
2: world stage with the war coming, but in the transformation of science from this very small um, kind of rarefied enterprise that a few privileged people in places like here were able to undertake to becoming a national enterprise mm. that, that mobilizes the financial and human
0: resources of the whole country. We've been hearing from Sean Hardy, librarian at the Carnegie Institute of Science up in Northwest DC. Coming up, we'll learn about the physics behind this story from the president of the Institute, Eric Isaacs, who happens to be a trained physicist. Stick around. And we're back. We now turn to the president of the Carnegie Institute of Science, Eric Isaacs. And he's not only the president, but also a trained physicist. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Luke, for inviting me. It's a privilege to be here.
0: So we've just heard the story of how DC became the unlikely birthplace of the atomic age. But we turn to you now to learn the science behind it. So tell us why was this fission so important to the scientific community back in 1939? And how did it work?
1: It was an exciting but scary time in the emerging field of nuclear physics. Uh, it was a time at which certainly Carnegie had its own research program, but there were programs around the world. In particular, there were great programs in Germany. There were great programs here in the US. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about something called fission. <laughs> the idea that nuclei, especially large nuclei, lots of you know, nuclei in atoms are made up of protons mm-hmm. and neutrons. And if you have a large imbalance in the two of those, that nucleus becomes unstable. It doesn't want to stay. So if you if you have like a nucleus of uranium and you load it up with additional neutrons, all of a sudden that thing becomes unstable and it fissions, it breaks apart, mm. when it breaks apart. It releases a lot of energy one atom doesn't really, I mean, one atom, I'll give you a number, one atom releases 200 megavolts. Now that sounds like a lot, 200 million volts, (laughs) Right. but that's not a lot. It's a tiny little blip. But what happened was in 39, people started realizing, wow, you could take that and you could create a chain reaction with that process. You could take one neutron, you could shine it on a nucleus, on a nucleus of something, let's call it uranium, because that's what was used. It would split that would produce more neutrons those neutrons would go on to split more nuclei and that would be a chain reaction one two four and so on and just become and that would happen very quickly that would release the energy that then became the bomb
0: Mm. now after fission was proved to be possible at the carnegie institute's atom smasher the institute's president at the time venivar bush helped launch the manhattan project and then robert oppenheimer ultimately developed the first atomic bomb these two men knew the science, but they also were able to convince the government and the country to believe in them and this science. Not an easy task. How did they do that?
1: Well, it, it, you're asking a great question. And um, and you're right. People like Fermi, even people like Meryl Tuva, some of these other folks, Oppenheimer uh, really had to put together their knowledge, deep knowledge of science with their ability to lead people. Those guys were really talented. I wouldn't say they're unicorns, but they had this talent to get people motivated right they were able to motivate now the war was very motivating because i think people in this country uh, were motivated they realized what was going on in in europe and scared a lot of people and also right. in japan and scared a lot of people so i think everybody had a common cause and so uh, there was already this susceptibility in the scientific community that it's our turn to help we've got to help i would also say something else about that time which i like to try to translate to present day the general public did not know the details of the atomic weapon. I mean that was top top secret. but the, the general public at that time did turn to scientists to help win the war, right? Mm-hmm. I mean the things like the proximity fuse, which was invented at Carnegie, things that you know all the things that were that were going on then, I believe that people had a real trust in scientists. And so you could have someone like Oppenheimer, you could have somebody like like uh, like Vannevar Bush, Organize big groups of scientists to solve a big problem, the Manhattan Project. Today, we have similar problems. We've got climate change. We've got other problems that are challenges, mm. sustainability of life on Earth. I, I wish it were less political. <laughs> I wish people said, scientists, help us solve this problem. We need a solution. Uh, but it was those people who came out as great leaders and great scientists who made it possible. I mean, without the judgment that Oppenheimer had without the judgment that Weber Bush had those people just had the big picture in their mind and they mm. understood both the science deeply but they also understood uh, how to how to work with people how to get people motivated mm. and you know it's
0: kind of like an existential threat right world war II was an existential threat to the US yeah. you kind of mentioned climate change do you see that as our current existential threat
1: i would say it's the it's sort of this interplay of enough food water and energy and the impact that that climate change is having on all three of those things right i mean it's it's energy of course produces a lot of carbon and we're using more and more of it um food requires enough rain and and square acreage to to grow food you need energy and water for food to produce food so all three of them are in, in, integrally related so i would say that's the big challenge right now it's a big challenge i mean look there are other bad things going on, like like in the Ukraine, and I won't deny that those have to be worried about. But the big scientific challenges, I think, are going to be to provide enough food and water for the population as the climate changes. I mean, that's a big, big, big problem.
0: And you talk about the scientific challenges that lie ahead when it comes to energy creation. You know, nuclear energy is a place that we still haven't seen the full potential of yet. As our world faces an energy crisis, Can you explain how nuclear physics can actually create energy and not just bombs? And what's left for us to learn in this world of nuclear
1: energy? So there's two kinds of nuclear power, basically. There's fission, which we've talked about, and all nuclear reactors around the world today that produce usable electricity are fission reactors. And that's a reactor that has, let's call it uranium. And the uranium, you know, is in rods and the rods are in this reactor. They heat up Water and the water is the steam is then used to generate turbines. So it's a fairly traditional way to to generate uh, heat. Well, you use fission to generate heat. There's a lot of heat generated, and then that's used to generate electricity. And that's what we do in this country. Um, we're at about, I think, roughly twenty percent um, electricity from nuclear. If you go to France, it's more like eighty or ninety percent. Wow. So they do a lot. More. That's fission, and there are more. You know, fission. We've had some problems. There was Fukushima. You know, the Three Mile Island. Uh, we saw it happen in Russia. Overall, though, <laughs> it's still safer. E- even today, it's safer than coal mines. You know, people dying from from coal, et cetera. I won't go into those numbers, but I will say that modern fission reactors are getting safer and safer. They have things like passive cooling so that you don't have to rely on a pump which might ultimately fail. So there are different different methods of making reactors safer. There are new ideas for fission reactors. One called small modular reactors. So instead, because they're very expensive, you know, very. So if you wanted a country to adopt nuclear, they'd buy, it's like a, a pack of six pack of beer almost. You buy, you know, you buy 100 megawatt reactors or you buy 200 megawatt, which are fairly small, big reactors, for a gigawatt, 200 megawatt reactors, and you just add them as you need them or as you become profitable. Mm. That's fission. So fission's making a lot of progress and, you know, it is being built in other parts of the world. We haven't, We've tried to build a few, but the cost was too high, but that's all I think manageable. The second kind of nuclear energy is fusion. And there's been a lot of discussion over fusion recently. There's a uh, experiments in this country, one at Princeton, there are a few going on at Princeton, they're trying uh, a smaller machine, but they've got some real advances recently for fusion. Now, fusion is yet to produce energy, right? So fusion is kind of the energy of the future. And that's where so fission, I explained before, is when you split an atom like uranium and it releases energy. Mm. So you have an unstable nucleus. You make it more unstable by throwing in an extra, you know, nuclear nucleon, a neutron, and it breaks apart. And when it breaks apart, it forms new elements, but it releases energy in the process. Fusion is what happens on, on every star in the universe. And there are a lot of them. Fusion is the most common form of energy in the universe. It's when four hydrogen atoms or hydrogen nuclei collide with a great deal of energy. It's very hard to get two protons, which are, you know, hydrogen is the simplest of atoms. It's got one proton, one electron. You take that proton and you try to push it against another proton. They want to repel each other. Mm. So you need a huge amount of energy to get them to come together. If you can bring four of them together, you can create something called helium. That's the next element on the periodic table. When you combine, four and you make helium that releases even more energy. So that's called fusion because you're fusing nuclei. And that's what the, that's what the sun does. And the sun does it because there's a tremendous amount of gravity squeezing all that hydrogen together at high temperatures. And so they're colliding all the time and producing a lot of energy. The sun produces energy. We're getting close to be able to do that on earth, right? People say, well, that's magic, right? You just take water, get some hydrogen out of water and bam, you've got all the energy you want it's a little harder to do than 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 said (laughs) but we're getting closer and i have no doubt you know it's i'm gonna you're gonna laugh but in several decades we'll figure it out i don't think it's gonna happen next week or next month there's an experiment up at up in california at at los alamos where they're trying to do this with lasers and they have lasers coming in from all directions to compress right sort of a pill of helium atom of hydrogen atoms there's one in France, which is called Eater, the International Toroidal. I forget exactly what it means. That huge ITER, structure, right? It's like this huge structure. And, you know, and that's hopefully the magnets. Yeah. Yeah. But again, what they do there is they have to confine, confine these hydrogen atoms, the protons, in a magnetic field. It's very complicated, yeah. but doable. And you have to do the same thing the sun does you have to compress them enough, create high enough density and temperature so that they fuse. And when they fuse, then they release this energy. And then you would take that energy and do what you need to do with it. Mm. So it's promising, but it's always, you know, it's always been the energy of the future. We've been talking about it since the forties and fifties. Wow. It's the energy of the future. Unfortunately, we also have hydrogen bombs. So those things are today. Most of our bombs are more hydrogen than than fission. Well, I don't know about most, but the most powerful bombs are fusion bombs. So it has dual use, as we would say. Mm. Um, Hopefully we'll never use one of those. Right. (laughs) Um, we've experimented with them. We've never used one. Obviously, we've only used fission. The U.S. is the only one that's used a fission bomb. But, but from a power point of view, fusion is a promising. Fission's already here, so we have it, and we should use it. It's mm. you know, it doesn't produce carbon, and so we should use it. We just want to reassure the public that it's safe. The
0: promises of fusion and a fusion reactor are so big. You know, it's like the ticket. I mean, that's the ticket to a clean energy future, where you yeah. know problems uh, surrounding climate change could wouldn't end immediately. But if we have this kind of unlimited source of energy, you know, the promise is incredible. It could save us, you know, really, literally
1: incredible, but it is hard. And it's not, you know, even if you make fusion work, you still have a lot of other issues with it, but, but it, it, it is very, very appealing. And, um, I have no doubt one day we'll make it work, but Mm. somebody will make it work. And these big experiments are, you know, this one in France is a great idea. The one at, Los Alamos, it's a great idea. We've got to try different things to see what we can make work. And so I fully support those efforts. But again, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next month. So we've got to do something. You know, one could argue fission is sort of the transitional method in in, in nuclear reactors. And then fusion would take over maybe 50 years from now. But then there's, you know, other things like solar, wind, and all those, which need to be deployed at a much higher, greater level too. Right. It strikes me that,
0: you know, 1939... The birth, the dawn of the atomic age, you know, kind of started and was announced to the world here in DC. But the story isn't over yet. We still haven't harnessed all the potential from nuclear physics. And it's a story that's still kind of going on, even though, you know, 1939 feels like so, so long ago.
1: Yeah, you're right. If I might add one other thing not related to energy, nuclear physics is still a very important field in astronomy and astrophysics. We're made, as you've heard this, Carl Sagan used to say, we're made of star stuff. And all, everything in the universe is made in stars, in different kinds of stars. You know, uh, elements like carbon are made in more routine stars, but elements like iron are made in supernova. Elements like gold, uranium, what we use for fusion or fission, is made in what we now know colliding neutron stars. So, you know, we, we just, there's a whole long story about gravity waves and all that. We're learning a lot more about nuclear physics every day we have, you know, and, and how, what we're made of is produced originally. How how did we come to be right? Not just how did life come to be? That's a really hard problem, but we now understand a lot more about how the elements that we're made of, the element that the earth is made of, Mm. the element that the whole universe are made of comes from stars and it comes from different kinds of explosions, nuclear explosions. Mm very interesting.
0: It really is. And Eric, we could talk about this for, for probably the rest of our lives, (laughs) you know, but uh, I appreciate you giving us your time here and kind of shedding light on all these big questions that I think are going to be bumping around in people's minds when they, you know, leave the theater after seeing Oppenheimer or just, you know, hearing all the
1: buzz about it, um, as they surely will in the weeks and months to come. There's a lot of information on the net on the internet, as you can imagine. I mean, Wikipedia has some great stuff on, you know, someone wants to look up how does fission work. It's not hard to find out. It's You know it's not it's deep physics but it isn't i mean it's like billiard balls you know you could think of it as billiard balls almost so so anyway i really appreciate the time i appreciate you your interest and delighted to talk about the fact that uh dc played an important role in in this whole this whole area of nuclear physics
0: eric thanks so much
1: thank you take
0: care and that'll do it for us today here on the dmv download podcast Who knew that DC was the birthplace of the atomic age? This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the DC area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Online at WTOP.com, and of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.